Hey, y'all, it's Julie Coley with History and Murders in Wichita Falls. I hope y'all had a happy Thanksgiving. Um, I did take the week off of Thanksgiving, after all. Um, but, you know, Thanksgiving, I'm sure, was a little different for a lot of people this time. Uh, couldn't travel, and you pretty much had to just stay home and, and enjoy family. And I'm sure that's the way it's going to be for Christmas, too. But you know what? We can all get through 2020. We can do it. So, this next story is about the North Texas State Hospital in Wichita Falls, Texas, and a man that was murdered in 1949. So, let's get started. Elmer Rhodes was driving on the highway just south of Sulphur Springs, Texas at about 8 a.m. on the morning of February 26, 1949. As he was driving along, he saw his friend and business associate, Houston Gibbons, walking on the side of the road with his Great Dane dog. As Rhodes got closer, he saw Gibbons lie down in the middle of the road. His dog was standing watch over him, and he was afraid to get out of his truck to try to help because he was afraid of that big dog. He put the truck in reverse, and when he did, Gibbons got up from the road and started walking back towards town. Rhodes then drove back the short distance to town to get help. Rhodes stopped to call the city marshal to tell him that Gibbons was acting peculiar. The message was relayed to Deputy Sheriff Eb Wheeler, and Wheeler, along with Sheriff Avera Rasur, went to the place where Gibbons had been seen. Spotting the man, they got out of their car and asked Gibbons to get in. He minded just like a child, hopping into the car with his big old Great Dane dog. He cooperated all the way to the Hopkins County Jail. During the following week, while he was being held pending a lunacy hearing, the normally quiet Gibbons talked incessantly and had delusions that he was a famous Bronco rider. Other than that, he behaved quite well. After the lunacy hearing, relatives of Houston Gibbons asked that he be committed to the state hospital in Wichita Falls. On March the 4th, Eb Wheeler, Gibbons' nephew, Herschel Gibbons, and another deputy, with commitment papers in hand, drove Houston Gibbons to the Wichita Falls State Hospital. He talked nonstop all the way to Wichita Falls, but he gave them no trouble at all. When they arrived at the State Hospital, they took Houston Gibbons to the admitting office. Thomas Saucier and another attendant came to get Gibbons to take him away. Like a child, Gibbons told Wheeler he didn't want to go with that man. But Wheeler told him, Houston, this is all right. It's all right for you to go with this man. Houston said, well, if you say it's all right, Eb, it's all right. And he walked away with Saucier. That's the last time Eb Wheeler ever saw Houston Gibbons alive. 
Thomas Saucier escorted Gibbons to the linen room to change his clothing into the standard issue clothing of the state hospital. Saucier told him to get his clothes off. Houston, being scared and confused, slowly began to unbutton his shirt. Not being fast enough for Thomas Saucier, Saucier jumped up from a chair he was sitting in and grabbed Houston Gibbons around the neck, putting him in a chokehold. Another attendant grabbed Houston around the feet and yanked him to the floor. Saucier fell to the floor with him, but immediately jumped back up. He then kicked Houston, and he stood back up. Thomas Pulley, another attendant, said Saucier punched Houston three times, and he fell to the floor again. Pulley picked Houston up from the floor and began unbuttoning his shirt. Saucier then hit Houston in the stomach, and then on the back of the neck, and knocked him down again. At about that time, David Beck came into the room, and both men began punching, stomping, and kicking Houston. Saucier told Houston, I ought to kill you. And David Beck said, we'll learn you who to mind around here. Desmond Trevilian, a bank clerk from McKinney, who'd been a patient at the hospital for three months, said that Houston was praying, and he said, Please, God, don't let them hurt me. Mother Queen, make them stop. Beck appeared to be getting a little worried about the treatment of Houston and told Saucier to quit choking him or he might kill him. Finally, Beck and Saucier managed to get the clothes off of Houston and headed him into the bathroom. David Beck ordered Trevelyan to clean up the blood on the floor of the linen room where Houston had bled from his beatings. Trevelyan cleaned up the mess and then hid the bloody mop behind a door where it wouldn't be found. He stepped close to the door of the bathroom and saw Gibbons swing at Saucier. Beck and Saucier both began hitting Houston in the face and the head with their fists. He fell between the bathtubs. Saucier and Beck began to stomp on him and kick him. They lifted him into a bathtub to give him a bath to get all the blood evidence off of him, and his head began to sink under the water. Someone in the room remarked that they thought that he was dead. Another attendant felt for his pulse and said he, he, that he was dead. Saucier said, hell no, he's not dead. He then grabbed Houston by the hair and pulled him up out of the water and slapped water on his face. He told the attendants to take him to the screen room. They carried Houston into the screen room and called for help. Beck began applying artificial respiration. Dr. Conrad Frey came to the room and pronounced Houston dead in Ward MH1 shortly before 3 p.m. And only about 20 minutes after Eb Wheeler had said goodbye to him, Beck kept applying the CPR to try to resuscitate him. The official cause of death on Thomas Houston Gibbons' death certificate states that he died because he fell while fighting resisting attendance. After his body was embalmed and sent back to Sulphur Springs for burial, his family saw the condition his body was in and asked the police to investigate his death. After an investigation, Thomas Saucier and David Beck were arrested 
for the murder of Gibbons. Thomas Saucier's trial was set for May 19, 1949. During the trial, many of the men who were present at the time of Houston Gibbons' death were called to testify. Thomas Pulley was questioned on the stand, and when asked why he never told his story when he was first questioned by the investigating officers as to what really happened that day, he replied, they didn't exactly threaten me, but they told me to keep my mouth shut about what happened. I understood what they meant. He said that he was afraid of both Saucier and Beck. Saucier told Beck, Pulley, and North to tell a story and stick to it. He told him to say that Gibbons had ca caused trouble while he was bringing him to the ward, and he caused trouble in the bathroom and fell over against the tub. Dr. J.L. Goforth, pathologist from Dallas, took the stand to relate the injuries to Houston Gibbons. He said even though he had been embalmed 20 hours before he examined the body, he was able to determine heavy bruises over the right eye on the left side of his face, on the neck, on the chest, and both scratches and bruises on the inner part of both upper arms. His internal injuries consisted of three broken ribs on the left side, two on the right side, and a huge hemorrhage in the upper right abdominal region. The smaller intestine had been torn completely in two, just to the right of the stomach. Several small arteries had been broken, causing the hemorrhage. He said it would have required an unusually heavy blow to rupture this intestine. The rupture and subsequent hemorrhage would have caused a very quick death. The jury deliberated for six hours and 20 minutes and came to a verdict at 11.20 p.m. on the evening of May 22, 1949. Thomas Coy Saucier was assessed the death penalty for the brutal murder of Thomas Houston Gibbons. Saucier's wife became hysterical when the verdict was read. Mrs. Willie L. Pearl Earp, Saucier's mother-in-law, fainted and had to be taken by Owens and Brumley Ambulance to the Wichita General Hospital. Charges were dropped against David Beck several days before the trial began. Beck had refused to testify against Thomas Saucier unless he received immunity. However, Sheriff Ham Vance found a way around the system and rearrested Beck on different charges. Beck was devastated. He had been promised he would not go to trial if he testified. On July 8th, while being held in jail awaiting his trial, he somehow managed to get some sedatives, and he took a quantity of them and overdosed. He was found unconscious in a cell. He was revived at the hospital and was deemed fit to stand trial a few weeks later. His trial began on July 28, 1949. The same witnesses were called to the stand, and the same testimony was given as it was the Saucier trial. A few new things came out in Beck's trial that weren't mentioned in Saucier's trial. But Beck wasn't being terribly cooperative, changing, changing his testimony from his original grand jury statement, according to Charles Prothrow, 
who was a member of that grand jury. Beck blamed the fact that he had been under the influence of Benzedrine and sleeping powders that he didn't remember a thing he had said earlier in the investigation. Wilbur North testified that in the last few minutes before Gibbons' death, Beck appeared in the bathroom with a cup of salts in a solution. North and Beck attempted to pour this solution down Gibbons' throat, but he said that the patient was too far gone to drink it. The solution was supposed to clear up bruises. Beck testified that he'd never heard of this treatment before coming to work at the state hospital. He said he was taught that if you give the solution to someone, it would reduce the visibility of bruises on the body. Beck said he'd worked in hospitals in Pennsylvania, Colorado, and Oklahoma before coming to Wichita Falls. At this point in his testimony, District Attorney C.C. Fillmore, who was trying to discredit the accused, brought out that he and his wife had given up a child in Colorado. Beck said this was true, that he and his wife had released their one-year-old baby to a welfare agency for adoption in Denver when they were no longer able to support the child. At this point, Mrs. Beck left the courtroom sobbing in tears. Beck broke into tears on the stand. Fillmore read a deposition from Norman, Oklahoma and Irwin, Pennsylvania of abuse by the hands of David Beck. There had been four prior acts of violence, including the kicking and beating of an aged patient during mealtime, making a report of heart attack after he had watched Thomas Saucier beat an old man, striking a patient with a water bucket, and punching and kicking a patient for non-obedience. The jury deliberated for 14 hours on the fate of David Beck, but there was a different jury this time, and that jury, on July 31st, found Beck guilty of murder with malice and sentenced him to only five years in prison. His attorney appealed and the conviction was upheld on August the 18th, 1949. He was formally sentenced on May 7th, 1950, and served less than three years of his five-year sentence. He was released from prison on March 28th, 1953. Meanwhile, Thomas Saucier was formally sentenced to die in the electric chair, on October 24, 1951, Judge Arthur Tipps handed down the sentence in the 30th District Court after the U.S. Supreme Court had refused to review the case. He was scheduled to die on January 10, 1952. But on January 8, 1952, the State Board of Pardons and Parole voted unanimously to commute the death sentence of Thomas Saucier to life in prison due to the fact that his accomplice, David Beck, only received five years for the same crime. He was paroled on February the 11th, 1967 from the Huntsville prison. Well, that's it for this week, y'all. Next week, I'm going to be telling a story called The Santa Claus Robbery. 
And it's an old story, but um, the interesting thing is that uh, it originated here in Wichita Falls. So stay tuned for that. And then we're going to take Christmas week off because I'm not going to be doing a podcast on Christmas Eve. So we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.